chapter uh, 12, where we're at. You remember last week we, we uh, continued on in chapter 12, and we were dealing with the aspect of spiritual gifts. And I told you that Romans chapter 12 is really not the definitive passage on it. If you really want the definitive passage to go through it, we've done this on Thursday night on spiritual gifts, it will be, uh, it will be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. But rather, this passage deals with and shows you how you and I, uh, through a process, should be able to realize the spiritual gifts uh, in our lives. You know, we talked about, uh, you know, just to bring it up to you one more time, we talked about the God's will and God's plan. God's will being the character of God in your life. That's building into your life the character qualities of God that make you what He wants you to be. And then through that, God's plan gets interfaced and you have the power of God in your life. You understand what God has called you to do. God gives you the spiritual gifts to get it done. And then uh, you follow through with what God has for you to do. We saw the great truth that God saved you for a specific purpose. There isn't anybody in this room that is a saved person today that God does not have a plan for. You may have not realized it in your life. You may have not done anything with it. But that does not take away from the fact that He had a plan for you and a purpose for you. And as you grow in grace and faith, God will give you the tools. Whatever, it ne- whatever you need, He'll equip you. These are the gifts we were talking about to, uh, for you to, to get it done for Him. We saw the model, and I told you last week how important models are in the Bible. Patterns that God has put in that if you and I have something we have to do for God, we have a clear example of it so we know how it's done. The Bible's not a book where God just gives you the verses and tells you what to do. Along with that, He'll always give you a model that shows you exactly how it is to be done. And uh, it's, it's, they're very important in the Bible, and I can't overemphasize that enough. God taking a young man uh, like He did Timothy with Paul. And as Timothy, through his local church there, uh, began to ministry, God brought him up the ladder of spiritual maturity. And in time, everybody in the church, the Bible says that he was well reported by the brethren. Everybody in the church understood exactly uh, what God had for Timothy because he came up through the ministry uh, itself, and God will always reveal and bring you up through that aspect. I told you last week, and something that I really, really want you to focus on, don't ever limit yourself. I talked about the foolishness of thinking that, uh, you know, that you only have one or two main spiritual gifts. As you grow, God will give you the ability to do whatever He's called you to do. Maybe right now He's called you to do one thing because that's where you're at on the spiritual level that you are. But He has something else that He wants you to do down the line that is on another level. As you continue to grow... He'll continue to equip you and give you everything that you need. You obviously can see the problem when you get the mindset that you're not going any farther and this is the only gift that you have. And of course, you never, and I mean absolutely never when it comes to Christianity and your relationship with God, want to limit yourself. You keep growing and you keep following the models that God has given you. I told you last week that right now God sees you, whatever spiritual level you want, you may have just gotten saved. You may have been saved for a number of years and just got plugged into the Bible. You may just be going through discipleship. You may be one of the ones that, uh, you know, that are going through uh, some of the upper level classes that we have for you to help you. It doesn't matter. Whatever spiritual level you're on, I guarantee you right now, you're going to see this before we're through this morning. Right now, God sees you in that, as that finished product. 
That's what he wants. He doesn't, when you got saved, he washed away all your sins. He doesn't look at you as a sinner anymore. He now looks at you as the finished product that he wants you to be. That's how he looks at it. I think many times we don't understand that. You know, we struggle with things every day, all of us. We have our good days and our bad days, and sometimes we end in victory, and sometimes we end in defeat. Bottom line is simply this. When you understand how God sees you, it will help you get through every day of your life. God doesn't see you in defeat this morning. Now, you may be in defeat this morning, but God doesn't see you in defeat this morning. God sees you in victory. And God also sees you exactly the way the finished product should be. Your job and my job, through the process of growing, is to also see ourselves the way God sees us and then find out what God wants you and I to do and let God develop that. Remember I told you that the job of a church is fourfold. The job of the church is to save you, train you, equip you, and then send you out. And I say send you out, I don't mean to Africa or India someplace, but back to your workplace, back to your family, back to wherever God has for you. And it may well indeed be China or India, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to leave the country as soon as you get to a certain point. Now, last week we saw the greatest strength in any church, and it's true of this church. But the greatest strength of any church will be its diversity. Now, I, I know this is the week before Christmas. And across this city and across this country, probably across the world, you know, pastors are preaching their typical Christian message, Christmas message. And, uh, you know, babies in the mangers and all that stuff. And I'm certainly not against that because, uh, you know, I understand uh, the importance of all that. But I thought long and hard uh, this week about this. And I, I was kind of torn on whether to put this back a week and, and give something that, you know, is apropos to where, and I don't know what apropos means, but I heard it on TV this morning and it seemed to work for that guy, <laughs> to, to, to put it into the context. But I, as I thought this thing through, I thought to myself, well, what is Christmas really about? Your little kids that were up here singing, I know my little grandkids, they're excited about Christmas. They're not excited about Christmas because they're coming to grandpa or grandma's house or the fact that they got a tree up. They're excited about one thing. You know what it is? Gifts. They've made their list, checked it twice, and we all decided they're naughty or nice. But the bottom line is, that's all Christmas is about to them. That's what this time of year is about. You go to work someplace, and you may pretend you're not paying attention, but when you get your paycheck right before Christmas last week, or maybe it'll be this week, I know what you're going to do. You'll be seeing if it's twice as heavy as it was the last time you got it to see if your Christmas bonus is in there, see? Christmas is about gifts. If you don't believe that, husbands, just go through December 25th with nothing under the tree for the one sitting next to you. (laughs) And find out how important it is. And you can change that too, guys, ladies. But the bottom line is this. If this is about gifts, and we're all excited about somebody giving somebody something, and I see you passing out your little things around here, I think it's great. But you know what? I can't think of a better message at Christmas time when we're talking about gifts than to talk about the gifts that God has for you today. I think it would be a tragedy if you were more excited about what's under that tree and that gift than the gift that God has for you to do what he wants you to do. 
Bible says that, that in the book of Ephesians that uh, he ascended. Before he descended, he descended. And when he rose up, the Bible says he gave gifts unto men. And right now this morning, at this time of the year that everybody is so excited about, that everybody is all into, let me tell you, God has some gifts that he wants to give you today. And, and it's simply growing through the grace and faith through the ministry of this church and then coming to the place where you realize what God has called you to do and then recognize the gifts that he's given you. And I, I want to I focus on that today. We want to look at some other great concepts about spiritual gifts. It's Christmas time. This is your Christmas message. God has a special gift, gifts for you. Don't walk out of here today more excited about what your husband got you, your wife got you, or what you're getting your kids or your grandkids or what you got at work or whatever. Don't get more excited about that than the gifts that God has for you today. Now, that's a good thing to me because I like presents. I like gifts. And you know what? We all that way. That's why you're not satisfied with your physical birthday. So you know what you come up with to get another present? Your spiritual birthday. That's the way we are, see? That's the way we are. We, we want gifts. And the way I look at it, when you get this gift and you understand what this is, it's Christmas every day. Because God has something for you and will give more to it to you every day. And that's what it's really, we all like that. We're all human. Nobody likes to be left out in the cold. Now, I want to read for you Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read some of this over again to put it all into context, and we'll, we'll come down through it. But here's what he says. For as we have many members in one body, I'm in Romans chapter 12, verse 4, it says, for we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, he's likened you and me as, as members of a body, and obviously, the example of that is very easy to see. Your own body. Your arms don't have the same function as your hand. Your, your, your arms don't have the same function as your neck or your back or your legs or your toes or your fingers. They're all independently do a separate job, but they got to work together to be coordinated. You watch somebody, some of you guys who can play basketball very well or you, whatever you do in sports very well, uh, most of that ability is simply based on your ability to coordinate the things that you do. And you are so coordinated in those areas because all your body is working together. I used to like, I can't even remember their name, but I used to like those basketball players, man, that, that just could make, I mean, you watch them make a shot or go up under the deal. And I mean, they wrap it around up under their leg and around their head all while they're in the air and then just slam that thing right down. That amazes me. If I would try to do that, I'd be in the intensive care ward for the next six months. But the bottom line is their ability is unbelievable. And yet I look at that and I think to myself, you know what? Their, their body is in total, complete coordination. And that's the way a church should be. That's what he's saying here. For we as, uh, we, as we have many members in one body, this body here, the body of Christ, all members have not the same office. So we being many are not uh, are one in the body of Christ and every one members one of another. In other words, it's the diversity that makes this church strong. Then he says this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith 
or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now again, last week we talked about some of the different areas that, that, uh, that you have in a church. And to me, I told you last week, some of you have certain abilities, others don't. Now that doesn't mean that down the line you won't have those abilities. It just means right now you have to be satisfied with where you're at and use the gifts that God has given you. You know, Hallmark coined the phrase, the gift, I think it was Hallmark, the gift that keeps on giving, that's God. The gift that he gives you, if you use it right, it keeps on giving because it develops itself. And we, we talked about the different aspects. In any given church, at any given time, there ought to be a host of people that can do just about anything on any level. Some maybe can do more than others. But certainly everybody can do something. I talked about Moses last week, that how that Moses, when he was faced with the, the, the plan that God had for him, that he was afraid. And he was afraid, but it wasn't a bad afraid. It wasn't afraid I'm ashamed or afraid because I don't want to do it or what the people are going to think. He was simply afraid that he wouldn't do a good job for God. And, and he, 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 he keeps talking about the fact that how weak he is and how he doesn't have the ability. And God, he, he didn't understand that that's what God looks for. God doesn't look at you and me and pick us because we're strong. Hey, I really believe with the judgment seat of Christ, I personally will lose rewards simply because there were situations in my life that I was too strong in, that I should have been weaker in, and let God do it through me instead of doing it myself. God doesn't look at you and me and pick you and me because of how strong we are. He looks at you and me and picks us because of how weak we are, because it's through our weakness that he wants to perfect not only your strength, but who he is in his strength. That's backward from what we think, because that's backward to the way the world thinks. Now again, diversity is the key. Let me define some of these for you as we move down through here. And then I'm going to show you, uh, there's four things in here. We're going to talk about two of them today. We'll talk about two of them next week. Now the first thing he says here in verse 6 is prophecy. He says, uh, uh, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now, let's talk about prophecy. You know, most of the time when we hear the word prophecy, we think it means in relationship to the future. And it does. But most people don't understand the total application or or basically the total way it breaks itself down. Uh, It also simply means laying out what God has said. Now, the word prophecy comes from the word prophet, and obviously the prophets are found in the Old Testament. Now, let's look at that for a moment and get the right definition, or the complete definition. In the Old Testament, they didn't have a complete Bible. I think sometimes that when we, when we come through um, the, the, the Old Testament, you know, and they're faced with decisions they've got to make, they, you think that they have a Bible that they look up just like you and I do. They don't. They have the first five books of Moses, and that's probably other than maybe one of other two books, probably all they had. We know that these many of the guys in the Old Testament actually write these books while they're alive, so they get added to it, but they didn't have a complete Bible. So when God wanted to get a message to them, what he wanted them to do, he used a prophet. 
And a prophet would come to the king or, or the people, whoever, and the Bible is filled with them. You've got a number of prophets in the Old Testament. Ezra, uh, Ezra Nehemiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Habakkuk, all of those men are prophets. And what they would do is they would come to the people and they would tell them what God had told him to tell them. They basically did what I do every Sunday morning. We have a Bible. We have the complete Bible. The job of a preacher is to open that Bible and basically tell his people what God has said. That's prophesying. Prophesying isn't just about the future. Prophesying basically in its Bible definition is basically telling anybody what God said anywhere. It can be the future, it can be in the past, and it can be in the present. So you want to understand what prophecy is in the Bible. And though there's nothing wrong when you say, well, we're going to study prophecy. And we think of that as all in the future. But that's not exactly, totally, uh, 100% the whole definition. Then it says, uh, verse 7, it says, ministry. Now, that's not ministry in general, but it's ministry in particular. In other words, God has a particular ministry He wants you to do. And He wants you to find out what that ministry is. And then when you find out what it is, then you do that with all diligence. So when it talks about ministry, it's not talking about in a, in a conceptual concept of, of the ministry in general. But rather, as you begin to grow, God puts you in ministry. And being in ministry is where God grows you, brings you through, gives you the grace and the faith as you have to deal with all the situations in ministry, and then God brings you up through the next levels. It's just that simple. Then he says teaching. Now, teaching is different from preaching. A pastor should be able to do both. Most can't. A really good pastor or a really good preacher will mix his teaching and his preaching together that you won't even know when he's doing it. A really good guy who's a really good preacher will be able to take teaching and preaching and mix and match them together just like you put them together and mold them all together and you can't, you can't figure out when he stops preaching and starts teaching and then picks up preaching again from his teaching. That's why biblical preaching is an art. Just like most of you can't take a canvas and paint a picture like this one, I couldn't do it. There are some people who can't. And uh, you ever see, I, when I was a kid growing up, I wanted to draw. You ever see those things in a Reader's Digest where you, you drew the thing and then you sent it in? Remember that? I, as a kid, I wanted to be, I wanted to draw. And what you did was they had some picture in there and you drew it out freehand and then you, you sent it in to them and they, they had experts look at it and then they said, well, this guy's got ability, so we'll contact him. I sent one in every month. Finally, I got a letter saying, thank you, don't send any more. I'm not an artist. My specialty in drawing is stick men. But there are some people who are just great at it. My point is this, not everybody, can, not everybody has the ability to preach. And, and, and some, of, some people preach, and they, they, they're good at preaching. Some people teach, they're good at teaching. But very few people are good at mixing it both together. Uh, that's something that is a gift. I'm not saying if you can't do it right now, that you won't be able to do it down the line. It comes as you grow. Most pastors start out being teachers and have to work into preaching. 
I was totally the opposite. I started out preaching and had to work into teaching. I grew up in a church where I thought if you didn't yell, scream, and sweat, and lose about five pounds every time you preach, and spit on the front row, God wasn't pleased. I still have the first message I ever preached. Nobody in this church will ever hear it. I listen to it every once in a while, and I get under conviction. Not because of its good preaching, I get under the conviction of the poor people what they must have been thinking while I was preaching it. It's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I had one speed and one volume, fast and loud. And if somebody said, you need to change your style, okay. To me, that meant louder, see? You have to learn those things. Then he says exhortation. Now, exhortation is, is simply... Always leaving, if you want to understand what exhortation is, it's simply this. In a simplest form, exhortation is always, whenever you're preaching, whenever you're teaching, trying to leave people better than you found them. Now, maybe they don't recognize that. If you've got a person who's living in sin and you are preaching on sin, he may not see it as exhortation or good for them, but in the ultimate, if the, if the judgment seat of Christ would take place that afternoon, he would see it very quickly. Exhortation is simply uh, always leaving people uh, better than you find them. You see, preaching is public proclamation of truths found in the Scriptures. But exhortation is the ability to take those truths and motivate people to act on what is the right thing for them to do in their life. That's motivation. Some guys are good teachers, but they're not very good preachers. Some guys are good preachers, but they're not very good exhorters. You want a really great preacher? And boy, this is where the old boys I used to listen to. A really great preacher will not just take, ex, will not just take teaching and preaching and blend it together. He'll take preaching, teaching, and exhortation and mix it together like the best bowl of chili you ever had in your life. And he, when it's done, it will add a dimension to his preaching and his ministry that, that you just don't find many places. But that's an art. I used to watch those old boys, boy, guys like Fred Brown, guys like R.G. Lee, and boy, I'll tell you what, even my own mentor in the Lord, Mel Shabaka, when I was done listening to Mel preach, I would charge hell with a squirt gun. I wouldn't even bother to look if I had any water in it. That's exhortation. Preaching is putting out truth. Teaching is taking that truth and showing you how to apply it. And a good preacher can do that back and forth, but you add the dimension of exhortation that when you leave, you're motivated hard to find today. Hard to find today. But those are gifts. And I have no doubt in my mind. I, that's why one of the things I like the guys preaching down at the, uh, down at the mission, I know that in, many, in most cases, if not all cases, you're, it's, it's all new to you. And I don't think for a moment, I certainly hope you don't, that uh, you know, you've arrived when it comes to preaching. I haven't arrived when it comes to preaching. To this day, and I've been doing this thing now for almost 40 years. I continually look at better ways of communicating, better ways of doing things, because I know that I can't ever limit myself. You know, we all have this problem, and it's a hard problem to overcome. We all have this problem that we get to a place in our life that we're satisfied spiritually, and then we want to coast. We want to live off what we've already stored up. And that may get you for a while, through for a while, but in time it won't. 
because you're going to use up the excess and you're going to be empty. You've got to continually, every day of your life, not limit yourself. Look at exercising every sense you have of what God wants you to do and what God's you to be. And uh, you know what? A good, you've heard me talk about that the church uh, is basically three things that a pastor ought to do. Every church, maybe they won't get it, but every church needs to be told three things in every passage that a pastor preaches or whatever he does. The church ought to understand that it has a purpose. The church ought to understand that it has to have a perspective. And the church has to understand that it takes passion for what you believe. Now, we talked about preaching, teaching, and exhortation. Let me show you how it works. When a man gets up and he preaches to you, he gives you purpose. When a man takes the Bible and teaches you, he gives you perception. And when a man gets up and exhorts you, he gives you passion. That's the three things the church needs. And as he, I, that's why I love the young guys, or the guys preaching down don't have to be young, anybody. I love listening to the guys preach down to the mission. <clears throat> I, can, I can evaluate by hearing one sermon <clears throat> pretty much what you got to work on, what, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. I listen with a fine-tuned ear because my job is to get the things in your life that help you get to the place where you can be. And you may well come to the point in your life where you are good at preaching, good at teaching, and good at exhortation. But everybody won't do it. Everybody won't do it. I, I told you last week... <clears throat> You know, the two great examples in the Bible of the two kinds of pastors, and I gave you two verses, and I hope you marked them in your Bible because those are classic, was David and Saul. You see, a, a pastor, somebody who preaches, or a leader in general, somebody who is a spiritual leader, they will fall into these categories. There are so much about the life of David and the life of Saul that show you what to do and what not to do. You have natural leaders, and then you have leaders who are pastors who, who lead by intimidation. And I look for natural leaders. David was a natural leader. You know how I know that? Saul was one who ruled by intimidation. You know how I know that? <clears throat> by looking at their lives. One of the greatest examples, and you probably have missed this, probably never saw it. I missed it for almost 30 years. I saw this about five or six, seven years ago. When I, when I went through these guys' wives to, again, critique me as a pastor, myself. And I remember one of the things that stood out to me. David was a natural leader. He had the ability to motivate people. Saul was somebody who always had to manipulate the circumstances to get the thing to happen. And when I looked at that, one of the things, I looked at, I looked at, that, at the mighty men of valor that they had. And to me, that summed it all up. And as a leader, these are things you need to learn. As somebody who, as a potential person down the line, is going to carry on this ministry or part of this ministry, these are things you need to learn. David's mighty men of valor, and they're listed for you back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 25, I think. David's mighty men of valor chose to follow him. Saul's mighty men of valor were conscripted to follow him. They were made to follow him. That says a lot. It says a lot about any leader who the people 
choose to follow them because of the fact of their ability to communicate, motivate, and to put those three things in their life versus some pastor who is always coming to the point where he's trying to control what you listen to. You saw it last third or two Thursday nights ago, didn't you? Somebody got up to say something and he was very promptly told to sit down and shut up. And you've got to realize that, uh, that uh, some, some guys are, are good teachers, but they're not good preachers. Some guys are good preachers, but they're not good exhorters. Some guys are natural leaders. Some guys really have to work at it. And, uh, and you've got to realize that, uh, you know, some pastors look at you and you come up in the Bible and you get good in the Bible, you get good at preaching, you'll never preach again. Right, Bob? Right? There'll be pastors out there that when you start to get into the Bible and you start to get good, and people start to, you know what that is? That's Saul and David. Remember that? Remember that little story back there when, when they were singing the songs? What was the song again? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And then what does the Bible say? Saul eyed David from that day forward. Ha <laughs> ha, you betcha. And there's places where you go that when you get good in the Bible and you start to grow, that pastor will come up and just flatten you down and hold you down. You know why? Because you're a threat. He's not a natural leader. A natural, a natural leader will expect you to get better than he is. A natural leader will want you to get better than he is. A natural leader will stand in the pulpit and says, they do that better than I do. You can't ever be limited in your spiritual growth. And many times, many times, what limits God's people, I know, I know, I know, we all can limit ourselves. You heard me say it many times. The only thing that's going to keep you from ever being what God wants you to be is you. I know that. I know I said that. Now I'm going to revise that just a little bit. The other area of somebody that will keep you from ever growing spiritually is the kind of leader who feels intimidated by your spiritual growth. You ought to be better at, you ought to, you ought to continue to grow and get better in everything you do. That's the way it should be. Unlimited. I said, God's gifts are the gifts that keep on giving. And it's just as simple as that. Now, the next thing he says down here, <coughs> thank you, Jimmy. Now, the next thing you see down here is giving. Now, you wouldn't think that giving would be listed as one of the gifts, would you? But remember now, a gift is the ability to do something for God based on the growth in grace and truth and faith. And we know about the Bible, we know that the proper spirit and the attitude about giving is exactly what it should be. Now that's why, if you've been in this church, I don't know, as long as you've been here, six and a half years, you've never heard me preach one message on giving. When I take up the offering, I tell the visitors, don't put a dime in. You never, you never were going to hear me get up and say, well, you know what? Uh, the giving is not uh, where it needs to be. I, I never do that. You will come here and the doors will be locked and there'll be a sign up. Sorry, closed. Couldn't meet our expenses. You know what? I think it's an insult to tell God's people they got to take care of God's work personally. And I'm just that kind of guy. 
And I just the way I am. I mean, if it's, if it's worth having, then it's worth paying for. If it's not worth having and not worth paying for, then what are we doing here? And in time, if you can't see the value of what God is doing, you know why so many people don't love God's church, don't love God's program, don't get involved in God's plan, don't get into the Bible? In any church. You know why? What the bottom line fundamental issue is, they have nothing invested in it. They have nothing invested in it. I could drive down the street and see 50 banks. And somebody could say, nine banks were robbed yesterday and they're going down. And you know what? I'd drive by them nine banks, wouldn't bother me at all. So I got to my bank. Now, Jim, why am I interested in my bank over all the other banks? I got an investment in that bank. Okay? This is our investment right here. This is our investment. And uh, it, 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 it comes to the point where it takes, it, you've got to grow through that. The example of that, the model of that is Abraham. And your, your giving grows as your grace grows. I think the two definitive chapters and why he concludes this into the gifts are found, the two definitive chapters on giving, as far as I'm concerned, are 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, uh, uh, verse 7. Now, in 2 Corinthians 9, it says this. It says that God loves a cheerful giver, not somebody who gives begrudgingly or whatever this or whatever that, but God loves somebody who gives it out of the abundance of his heart. But before you get to that verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about the group that he's talking about in 9, and it says this. They gave of them own selves first. See? Nobody will give to anything that God does financially unless you give of yourself first because then you have an investment in it. That's why he lists that in there. That's why he puts that in there. And this is, this is, the, this is how it goes as far as you grow in this. Now, within this passage... There's four great key words, and like I said, we're going to talk about two of them today, and then we'll tie the other two into the last part of this passage next week. But there's two words that will make you or break you concerning the spiritual gifts in your life, the power of God in your life, God's plan versus God's will, character of God versus the gift of God. Remember now, this is Christmas. Don't walk out of here today refusing the gift that God has for you. I mean, would you like it if, if uh, how would you like it on Sunday morning, or Christmas morning, <clears throat> you went out and bought your wife this, something really nice, and she's sitting over there opening up, you've been excited, wanted to give it to her, or ladies, you bought your husband something, and you just know he wanted it, and you went out and you got something, and you wrapped it all up, and you were anxious all week long just to give it to him. In fact, you wanted to give it to him before Christmas, but you didn't, and finally Christmas morning, <clears throat> you're standing there, and you say, here, this is for you, honey, or you say, sweetheart, this is for you. And she opens that up, you know, you know how women do it, one little leaf at a time, because she's thinking she can save the paper for next year. Us guys, we don't think that way. It's rip, rop, and tear it open, you know. And then she gets it open, and you're standing there waiting for the anticipation. And she looks at it, and she says, oh, that's nice, and throws it aside. Would you, what would you do? I'd take it back, hit my money, and buy something I wanted at that point. But, you know, it would hurt you. Now, nothing's going to happen that way on Christmas. Because we as human beings... I've had people giving me the most stupid gifts in the world. There's, I almost have you. My sister, and I love her to death. She's gotten better in the last couple of years. This year was really good. But she would, does anybody, now this is, my, she would get me cologne. Does anybody know how old 
British sterling is? Oh, you know. <laughs> you know, British sterling. When I was in high school, that was a hot thing. If you smell like British sterling, you got the women. <clears throat> Three years ago, for Christmas, four bottles of British sterling. Where do you buy British sterling today? I think she sent to England for it. Really, I mean, I don't know. Where do you buy British sterling today? Have you ever seen it? Has anybody seen it in the last 40 years? I mean, I didn't want to use it. I figured I could cheap it for another five years, sell it on eBay, and get a million dollars for it, you know? British sterling. But when my sister calls on Christmas, and we call her on Christmas, <coughs> she gave me a watch one year that was broke. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. No, 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 don't go there. It wasn't replace the batteries. It didn't work. You'd twist a little knob on the top and the hands would just go around, but they, you know, I mean, it was the only watch in the world that was right twice a day. <laughs> you know? She called that Christmas afternoon. Now, what did I say? Did I say, this was the stupidest thing you ever gave me and I'm sending them back. Why would the world, would you send me a broken watch? It's coming back tomorrow. You know what? Just send me the money. No. You know what I did? I said, honey, that was the nicest watch anybody's ever given me. I love British Sterling. <laughs> I say, old chop, it makes me feel great in the morning and a pip-pip to you too. I did it. And I just, no, you know, I said, I, I love it. My favorite cologne. Now, in other words, I didn't make her feel bad. And you know what? Why is it that we'd go at such great lengths not to make our friends feel bad, our relatives feel bad, but we just don't give a flip about God when he gives us a gift and we say, don't need it. He has some gifts for us. It's Christmas. Now, these two words here are really two phrases or the key as far as I'm concerned, and this is where every young man and young lady has to begin to grasp some of these things, and it's part of the process. Now, the first thing he says in verse 7 is this. He says, we're to wait on ministry. Now, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but the next thing he says is in verse 8, and he says, do it with simplicity. Now, these are the two key words uh, to your success and whatever God's called you to do. I'm just telling you right now. Now, I want to take each of these separately and define them from the Bible and show you how they fit into, your, into the plan that God has for you of you realizing your spiritual gift. Now, we're going to reverse them because I want to, for impact's sake, want to save the last one or the first one to the last. But the Bible says, anyhow, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So it doesn't make any difference. Look at verse 8, simplicity. Now, I can't, I can't overstate this enough. It's absolutely imperative that you see and understand this concept because everything about God hangs on this one word, and it's the word simplicity. And I can't, I can't overemphasize that enough. Now, when the devil wants to destroy everything about you, God, the church, and everything about the Bible, the key ingredients, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this is one verse you want to look at. Here is the devil's plan to destroy the church and keep you from ever getting where you need to be. And it's incredible. Now look at Genesis, uh, excuse me, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and pick it up in verse 1. 
Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. And he's got some fears about the church at Corinth. And every pastor had a look at his church with the same kind of fear that Paul had toward this church that he started here on his missionary journey. Look what he says. Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay? He's talking to the church. And he says, what I want to do is I want to make sure that when you meet Christ, you're as pure as a virgin. Because the church is likened to a virgin, to Christ, the bridegroom, the woman, the church, the virgin, the bride. And he says down here, he says, but I fear. And here's his fear. And it's well-founded. But I fear as the serpent, that'd be the devil, beguiled Eve through his subtleties, so your mind should be corrupted from what? From the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, when the devil wants to throw a wrench into your spiritual growth or stop the church or stop Christianity, he just takes the simplicity concept by which on everything hangs, and now he makes it complicated. Notice how simple life was in the garden before Genesis chapter 3 versus how complex it was after the fall of Genesis chapter 3. And you need to understand that when it comes to the Bible, the bottom line is you will be corrupted from the simplicity of Christ. That is his main goal, to corrupt your mind from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, very frankly... I get attacked all the time about not liking Bible colleges. And people say, well, you're, 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 you don't like Bible. I'm not, it's not that I don't like Bible colleges. I'm just pro-local church. But let me tell you what a Bible college does, the, how it fits. Now, I'm not saying that all Bible colleges are satanic. There's probably one or two that it's not. As soon as I find one, I'll be glad to tell you. <coughs> so listen carefully to what I'm saying. <coughs> you know what a Bible college does? <coughs> seminary. And, and we in the pastorate, we make jokes about it. I had a pastor tell me one time that the worst place you can get out of fellowship is in a Bible college. And he had went to one. We joke about called seminary, seminary cemeteries. We joke about it because you know why? We understand from a pastor's standpoint the how goofy they are. I've had a thousand pastors in my life tell me that he never learned one thing about the Bible or ministry in, in Bible college. And, and you know why? Because they have one goal, and that is they take something that's simple and make it complex. John's a lawyer. He has to go to law school. When he goes to law school, he learns all the terminology that a lawyer uses. When you sit down in John's office and he tries to explain to you what's going on in your world, you say, John, make it simple. He'll talk about, we will need to get rid of hideous corpus. And you'll look at him and say, I don't need to get rid of any corpse. I didn't kill anybody, see? <laughs> look at John. He knows what a rid of hideous corpus is, don't you, John? I don't. I just heard that on, heard on NCI last night to fit into my message. You go to the dentist. He went to dental school. And you go in there and sit down in a chair, and he tells you you're bicuspus or up against your molars. <laughs> now, if he told you that the big teeth on the top are rubbing against the little teeth on the bottom, he couldn't charge you $65. You go into your mechanic, and he looks at your car. 
and he tells you in some ecstatic language like Greek and Hebrew, what's wrong with your car? He has to break it down. You go to a doctor. You go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you in, in his Latin terms what's wrong with you, or his big terms what's wrong with you. And when it winds out you just got gas, <laughs> you think you got cancer. I'm all for him learning the terminology because he's a professional. I'm all for a doctor learning it. They're professionals. I'm all for mechanics learning it. They're professionals. What you can't make professional, ladies and gentlemen, is Christianity. And when you do, you destroy the simplicity. Now, if you come to Thursday night Bible study sometime and I get up there and I talk about, okay, Tonight we're going to talk about pneumonology. Now today we're going to go through apologetics. Tomorrow we're going to study hemorrhoid nudics. <laughs> then I'm going to bring you through anthropology. And then we're going to finish up with a great in-depth study on eschatology. Now you see, that sounds impressive. But not too many people know what it means. I have never understood why you would go to Bible college to learn a system of terms and a way to talk that nobody in the Bible ever talked. Did you ever see Jesus when he came to the common man? When he had a feeding on the mount of, of, of the 5,000, did he go through, did he lay out, did you find the word eschatology, anthropology? Did you find the word uh, hemorrhoid nudic? Did you find the word any of those things in there? No. He, you know what he does? He takes simple little things. And he explained what he's trying to give the truth to. In other words, he makes it simple. Pastors are notorious for trying to keep you in the dark by making you absolutely, totally, completely uh, over your head. Look at salvation. Is there, any more, is there anything more simple than salvation in the Bible? Bible? The greatest verse on salvation in the Bible is 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. It says, this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And then it says this. Greatest single verse in the Bible. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. All one-syllable words. It simply says, either you're sitting here this morning, bottom line, either you got him or you don't. You know what man does? Man makes an eternal decree of depression. Man makes it water baptism. Man says, well, it's got to be in our church. Man says, well, you know, it can't be that simple. You got to do this. Man takes all of the simple, basic things that God lays down in the Bible and then tries to make it complicated. When a man talks to you about going back to the original Greek, like a couple of weeks ago with Bozo the Clown, when he, when he tries to get you to go through and pull you back to the original Greek, it's for one purpose, to confuse you. One time years ago, uh, old Shane McGreedy was a, was a country preacher, and he got into a, they tried to get him to come to a fellowship one time. He never would go because they didn't want didn't to hobnob with the big guys. And he'd been out in the frontier winning people to Christ with all the big guys, you know, and they brought him in, kind of make fun of him. And one of the guys thought he'd be sport with him because he knew, and so he quoted a verse in Greek. 
And, and, and he said to Machine, now, could you, could, you, could you expound on that? You know what old Machine did? He quoted the verse back and, and gave it to him in Chakwa Indian. And the guy said, oh, he's got it, brother. He's got it. He's got it. Yeah, he understands it. Yeah. You know what he did? He wanted to make fun of him because he thought because he didn't know the Greek that he couldn't be like him. See how it works? The key is simplicity. And what happens is we get our minds corrupted. And we have to have the ability. One of the gifts is the ability to take the Bible in all of its teaching and break it down into simple, basic concepts that anybody can grasp it. When you go in to see a counselor, professional counselor, who you're paying $80 an hour for, you know what his motive is? I'm telling you right now. You may not agree with it. You may not believe it. I've worked with the guys I know. You know what their goal is? To keep you, and I've seen this happen. They keep you coming to help get the help that you need right up to when your money runs out. If your insurance is paying 80 bucks, they'll work with you and bring you right through, right up to the fact that you say to him, well, I don't have any money today, and suddenly you're cured. The motivation is gone. Their job is to get you, keep you as long as they can in your problem because that's how they make a living. You see, that's the difference between what a Christian does and what a professional does. A professional does the ministry because that's the way he makes his living. A Christian does the ministry because it's his life. How do you charge somebody to help them in their problems? when you're going to use the same Bible that God used in your life to get yours fixed and didn't charge you anything. Simplicity. Simplicity. You know, I'm, I, I know Barb Christie thinks I'm the smartest man in the world, but that's not true. I'm, I'm really not very smart, and I have no apologies. I think that's why some of you and me get along so well, because you're not very smart either. And you know what the problem is? You look at that like it's a bad thing. See? Not being very smart is the greatest commodity you can have in a relationship with God. The thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to get educated beyond your intelligence when it comes to God. And you certainly don't want to think you're any smarter than God. My genius lies in the fact that all my life <coughs> I've been able to look at complicated things and the only way I can understand them is break it down. I remember one time I, when we first got our power lawnmower that my dad asked me to cut the grass. And I cut the grass. But I was so, in, up to that point we had the old, you guys don't even remember the old push. Well, you do. You do. Probably Steve does. Jesse does. You probably do. And you know what, kids? Before <clears throat> there were power mowers, there was push lawnmowers. <clears throat> and it was you power. <clears throat> and you pushed that thing. And it had a rotator in there that cut the grass, and you had a ruler behind it, and you pushed it. See? Well, I remember we got our first power lawnmower. I was like 14. My dad said, will you cut the grass? I was thrilled, but I was also enchanted by a power mower. I cut the grass, but then I got looking at it. And I wanted to find out how it worked, so I took it apart. Now, I've never been good at putting them back together but I found out what, how it did work. My specialty is breaking it down, not putting it back together, so to speak. 
But I've always, I've always been able to look at anything complicated and just see it. And it's, you've heard me say it. How many times have you heard me say it? Break it down to the lowest common denominator. Whatever it is in life, whatever it may be, whatever you're facing, whatever the verse is in the Bible, whatever the concept in the Bible, whatever it is in life, divide it down where it cannot be divided anymore, and there's where you're going to start. I followed that line of ministry all my life. But it takes time to develop that in your life. And it takes much self-discipline to keep the simplicity. Now, do you know why it's so hard to keep the simplicity in when you're dealing with people? I'll tell you why. It's real simple. There's no show in simplicity. There's no look who I am. There's no strutting around with what you know. Simplicity simply means you just lay it out and anybody can see it, that you don't walk away thinking, wow, I really showed them. Everybody sees it. There's no show in simplicity. And what we want in Christianity today is, look at me. We don't want people who say, look at Christ. We want people to say, look at me. And simplicity goes right out the window. You can't be somebody like that and be simplistic in your approach, because there's no show in it. Everybody looks at it and says, well, anybody can figure that out. That ain't no brainstorm. But it takes time. It takes time. It takes time to develop this. And simplicity is the key. You've heard me say about the Bible. Bible's an intimidating book. 31,176 verses, 66 books. I mean, look at it. Now, mine's not that big compared to some of yours because the, the bigger the print, the bigger the pages has got to be and the thicker it gets. You've got 1,189 chapters in there. You know, you start coming to that book, how many times have I heard a young Christian say to me, well, I want to start reading the Bible, but I don't know where to start. It's intimidating. It's intimidating. You've heard me also say, you know what, when it comes to the Bible, there's a hard approach and there's the easy approach. You've heard me say this a million times, bears repeating. Say you want to go to St. Louis this afternoon. You say, Bob, how do I get to St. Louis? Well, if you're just a Bible believer who believes that the ministry is simplistic, that I'm going to tell you to we'll get on down here, right down here at uh, this exception, get on I-70, and just go east on I-70, and about two and a half, three hours, three or four hours later, you'll be in St. Louis. That's a simple route, isn't it? Now, if I wanted to make it complicated for you, I'd say go down to the exit, get on I-70, and go west. And keep driving, you'll go through... Colorado, you'll go through Nevada, you'll go through, finally get to California, and then you get on a big boat, and then you take that boat to China, and then you get off in China, drive through central China, all of India, drive through North Africa, drive up through England, and get on to England and get another boat, and then come across the Atlantic and get in New York, and then drive from New York in right through St. Louis. Now, which is the way that you would want to go? Well, the Bible's the same way. You can either learn the Bible as simple as getting on I-70 and go to 70, or you can go by the route of China and never get there. One is God's approach. The other one's man's approach. Remember when we did our basic Bible institute? We took those 31,171 verses, 1,000 chapter, and I broke a whole intimidating Bible down for you into eight basic sections. Showed you each section separate from the other section, and then showed you how to bolt it together. I have never seen anything that we've ever done turn the lights on in people's lives when it came to the Bible like when we did that class. Now, can I stand up here and say, you know what? I was praying over the church one night on my roof. 
late at night while Barb and the dogs were asleep. And I looked up to heaven and a light came down and God's voice said, Bob, feed my sheep. And gave me this great plan. He scrolled across the heavens. I'm glad the neighbors weren't up because they would have asked us to move. He scrolled across the heavens. And he showed me section one, section two, section three, section four, section five, section six, section seven, section eight. That's where I belong, <laughs> section eight. And anyway, he, he laid that thing out. And I bring it to you today as God's man with God's truth. Given only to me by God and now, oh, you're so lucky. No, you know how I got it? I got it sitting down and working it out, being stupid just like some of you are. No pride involved in it. No glory in it. I had to learn through the simplistic, easy way, and I've learned there's no other way to do it. And you've got to learn. He says, part of understanding and getting the gifts is keeping it simple. We look at ministry. If you go to a, a seminar on ministry, oh, they'd have a syllabus and they'd have all kinds of stuff. And you know what? The ministry is basically people. And I've told you already, the job of the church is just simply four things. Saving people, training people, equipping people, and then sending them back to do something for God. And you know what? Sitting here today, if you're a people, if you're a person, you're in one of those. You either need to be saved, you're in the process of training, you're in the process of being equipped, and some of you are in the process of being sent out. It's just that simple. We're going to start our counseling process once we get through with this year's last year of institute and I will be taking many of you and bringing you through the inside of biblical counseling but you know what there's another thing you go to a counselor and he'll tell you he'll save you on for hours and hours and hours he'll talk about every big term of everything you can talk about he'll talk about nothetic counseling he'll talk about the uh, all the different big terms that everybody has that they use to confuse you let me tell you something Dealing with people is real simple. <clears throat> it's real simple. You take the word counsel in the Bible, you'll find there's two kinds of counsel. <clears throat> and you're going to find <clears throat> that man on planet Earth has problems in his life one of two ways. Not three, not four, not five. One of two ways. You see, we get so busy sometimes treating the symptoms of the problem, we don't recognize what the real problem is. If you're sitting here under the sound of my voice today and you have megaton problems in your life, you have issues that you're trying to solve or you can't solve or you're dealing with this or that, I can guarantee you my counsel to you is very simple and very basic. You know, I've even had people say when they come in, they call about coming in for counseling and the last thing they ask is, oh, how much is the cost? And I said, it doesn't cost anything. How can that be? They think that it isn't any value if there's not a price tag on it because that's the way we're conditioned to think. I said, lady, if I, if I charge you what it cost me to get it, you wouldn't have all the money in the world couldn't pay for it. It cost God's son on the cross to get it. How do you put a price tag on that? But if you got problems this morning or you deal with people in problems anywhere, it's simple. Don't make it complicated. If you're here this morning and you're unsaved, 
You have problems in your life because God designed salvation for you and you have neglected it. Therefore, you're struggling with all the things in life because you're going against the grain of God and His plan and you can't get anywhere. You try the world, you try the drinking, you try the booze, you try the parties, you try everything to try to satisfy. But deep down inside, there's something that cannot be satisfied because God made you, He gave you a soul, and that soul needs to be restored to Him. And my counsel is to you, if you've got problem in your life, you're unsaved, get saved. It'll solve your problem just like that. And then you have some place to go. If you're saved and you have problems in your life, you have struggles in your life, you can't get anywhere in life, you think everything's upside down and, and, and you just, and you have all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems, whatever it may be. Bottom line is this. My counsel to you is start to see why God saved you. God didn't save you so you could continue to live your life the way you wanted to. God saved you because he had a purpose. He's got a plan and he's got some gifts. And you go on with your life, do your own thing, go against the grain. Well, I'll tell you what, the greatest verse in the world that I found last year, and I knew it where it was, I just never impacted it because I didn't really have to use it as much. But the bottom line is this, over there in Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 says, who has hardened himself against God and prospered? Nobody. You got problem this morning, one or two reasons. You're either here this morning and you're lost and you're trying to swim upstream against the world. And my counsel to you is to get saved or you are saved and you're trying to go against the grain of the principles of the word of God and do your own thing. And there ain't any future in that. My counsel to you is to get right with God, find out what God's plan is. And get on track. It's only two. And it's very simple. I deal with people with marriage issues. You see, you've got to learn that in, in growing, in grace, and learning how to gifts of ministry, you have to realize that it all comes down to being simplistic. You can't sit down and help anybody by confusing them. That happens a lot of time with young Christians. They'll come to Thursday night Bible study and they'll get some really great concept, you know, that we'll teach and then they'll go out and try to teach it to their family or their friends or somebody else and they'll look at them like they're an idiot. You know why? Because you have to understand something before you can teach it. But that's the way we are. Marital issues are always a tough time in America anyhow. And most of the times, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to marriage, I have two simple rules. It ain't complicated. I know we have a marital course that we bring you through if you want to get married and you go through and get the help that you need, and I'm all for that. But in reality, I could save you a lot of time. I really could. I could save you a lot of time. Now, we won't do that because it just doesn't work that way. But in reality, in my world, I could just save you a lot of time. Follow two rules. One, don't marry an unsaved person. That easy? I don't care how good she looks, how good he looks, there's no future in it. Rule number one, that's simple. Rule number two, well, she's saved or he's saved, all right? Second rule, never marry the person. Never marry the man. Never marry the woman. Marry the Christ in the man. Don't marry the man. Don't marry the woman. Marry the, you don't realize that someday as the body of Christ, we are going to be married to Christ? Well, right now, if we know that earthly marriage is a picture of that, why would you settle for something less? 
Why would you settle for a person, male or female, who when it comes to push to shove, can't make the right biblical decision to do what's right? Don't marry the man. Don't marry the woman. Marry the Christ in the person. And when you don't see it, don't marry it. How simple is that? Why, well, you can just shut down all the marital counseling right now and just go with that and it'll work. But we won't. We won't. Whatever it is about God or the Bible or life or relationships or kids. I was talking to Kyle last week. He came over and he, he you know, and he's got a, a, a kid that him and his wife have been known and, and working with and, and love very much. And kid's got a lot of problems, some serious issues. And, and Kyle doesn't get any better than Kyle and Casey. Of course, Casey, Kyle's only good because Casey, but you know how that thing works. <laughs> but it doesn't get any better. I'll tell you right now, you got all the makings of somebody who's going to do something for God. Got some things to learn, but that just goes to the territory. But you got what I look for. Remember those seven things that I talked about the other night I looked for in a guy? You ain't got any of them, but you're getting there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but this is how you learn, see, Kyle. When you come over that night, and I saw what I like, I saw the burning passion inside you. I saw the passion that you wanted to help this kid. And I love that. That's what I look for. But in reality, when we sat down, you realized at the end of the day, it wasn't your job to do. It goes back to his parents. And I can do with your kid on Sunday morning. Barb, you can do with him. But the girls back there, the guys back there can do with him right now. We can take them up there, Kyle, on youth group. And you can take an hour and teach them the best Bible in the world. But if when they go home, their parents undo everything you did, what do you got? But I love the passion. I love the passion. And I see that in a lot of you younger guys. But see, in time, Kyle will learn the experience to understand that. But how does he learn? He learned by coming over, sitting down, and we talk it through. And I show him. We must have took, what, 15, 20 minutes of going through that thing and laying out every aspect. That's how you learn. That's how you get experience. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Arrogance is never a substitute for experience. Don't fall into that trap. Arrogance is never a substitute for experience. You may think you know what you're doing, but brother, if you don't have a model and a plan behind it, you're in trouble. And that's just, that's just the way it is. And you know what? You've you got to realize that it's simple. You don't send your kid to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You don't do this with them or do that with them. You basically take the basic biblical principles and lay it out really simple. And, and you know, the guy says, well, you know, uh, well, how, where would you start? Where would you start? Where would you, what would you say? To, I wouldn't say anything to the kid. I start with the parents. And I'd simply say, this is real simple. Now, I know you've been paying $200 an hour, but this is real simple. The bottom line is you want to change your kid? Do you want to change your kid, ma'am? Sir, do you want to change your kid? Yes, I do. Do you really? Absolutely. Okay, then you've got to change yourself first. Oh. See? See? We want to treat symptoms. We don't want to solve problems. How about life? I read a quote last week that I thought was great. Man said, life is an endless road with many avenues, and each one of us must travel through its trails and hardships. And each one of us on this road called life this endless road with many avenues, we all at the end must find our own way. Oh, that sounds impressive. 
That sounds good. Too bad it isn't true. You know how hard life is? Life isn't hard. Life is as simple as two concepts. If you decide in your life, in your life, you're going to go God's way. If you decide in your life, you're going to go God's way, then you can look at life and throughout all of life, what you see is endless hope for your life and what you're going to do. You go your way and do it your way versus God's way, and all you're going to have is a hopeless end. How much simpler can it get? See that wall? Behind that wall with bricks. And I can start right here and say, this wall is not going to stop me, and I can walk into it. And I can say, oh, I got to do it harder. And then I'll say, oh, I know, I got to back up more, and then I get to run at it. Pretty soon, I'm all the way back to the door, running at full speed. And you know what? I still don't penetrate the wall. That's the way some of God's people are with God. You're never going to do it your way if you're a Christian. And part of the problem we have in life is coming up against that wall, and it'll always be there. He says, wait on ministry. Wait on ministry. Not only are we to be simplistic in what we do, and it takes time to learn these things. And that's why the second aspect of waiting on ministry is so important. Now, it's not saying wait till you're ready to minister. We know the key to growing spiritually is, is doing whatever God has called you to do and exercising your senses. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, the things that you do. But rather, while ministering in your local church, wait on God and don't get in a hurry. Be patient. Be long-suffering. I think impatience is the number one thing. These are the two things. Everybody wants to make it more complicated, and everybody wants to make it faster than it can happen. When it comes to learning God, it takes some time. One of the greatest models and examples in the Bible, that will be Enoch. He walked with God for 300 years before God saw fit to bring him home. While you're ministering, you've got to come to the place that you realize that you have to wait on God. Now, I, I have a simple rule in ministry for me personally. I never, I, when people work with me in ministry, I, I have all of these have requirements, some standards. There's some things that I tolerate, other things I simply will not tolerate. But making mistakes is something that I'll always tolerate. Chris and I talked about this yesterday. I can't really fault somebody for making a mistake in doing in ministry because I make them all the time. And I, I think that anybody who, who doesn't allow people to make mistakes, I, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a too hard of a line because certainly somebody says, I'm not going to allow you to make mistakes, obviously thinking in their mind that they don't make mistakes, and that's a fallacy. We all make mistakes. But you know what I try not to do in my life? I never try to make the same mistake twice. That's the key. And when we continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again, you know what it's saying? We're not learning from our mistakes. Mistakes are good. I don't think they're bad. When my kids were growing up and even our grandkids now, sometimes they just do dumb things. If, if one of my kids comes over there and, and they're sitting around the, the house with me, with babies and, or the kids, and, and they're sitting at the table and they're fooling around and they, they, spill, they spill their milk, they don't get a whipping for that. That's an accident. That's an accident. If I got a whipping for every time I lost something, did something dumb, man, I'd be standing all my life. 
Now, you take that same little girl and they do a willful act of disobedience. They hit their sister. They bite their sister. They spit on me or somebody else or defy authority. Then it's time to take them to the woodshed. Okay? <laughs> and I'm just telling you, mistakes are good as long as you learn from them. And I say they're good. I mean, they're going to happen. You might as well learn from them. The greatest example of the model in the Bible for this is a man found in the early years of the nation of Israel. Now, we're talking about waiting on God. His name is Samuel. We talked about the simplicity. Now, let's look at this waiting thing. And Samuel is a great model for every man and woman. If you don't have it already in your Bible, you ought to have it in. I'm telling you, whoever wants to get to the place that God uses him or her uh, and that you fulfill God's plan with God's character and, and the gifts of God, he's your man. I don't know of a better example probably in the whole Bible, that gives you the detail. And our study on his early years unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3. You don't have to even turn to it. I'm going to have you turn here. You want to turn to it, turn to chapter 3. It's an incredible story. You know the story of Samuel. His mama waited for her to have a boy. She had such a desire to have a little child, a man-child. Finally, God gave her one. When she got that child, when he became old enough, she took him right down to the temple, picture of the ministry, give him to Eli. said, make him a man of God. And we find in his early years, Samuel working in that ministry. And there's where he learned some of the great principles, and God worked with him, and the story is great. I think two great verses set him apart, not only as a great person in the Old Testament, but a type of you and me. And I think these two verses are very key in understanding how we're to wait on God. The first one's found in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19, and it's key to understanding his, what God was doing with him. And it simply says this, and this is the last verse in chapter 3 before we get into the rest of his ministry, and it says this, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and didn't let none of his words fall to the ground. I think that's simply probably the greatest single statement not only on his life, but the key to your life and my life. How many times we come to Thursday night, Sunday morning, and the message just goes in one ear and out the other. The types, the examples, the patterns never get down on paper. They never get into a notebook. They never make it into your Bible. And then we wonder why two years, three years, four years, five years later, we're still struggling with the same stuff. You know why it is? Because we let the words fall to the ground. He didn't. Then the second thing. Found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. Now, this is a great point here. God saying, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. That's a great verse. That, that verse ought to be in everybody's Bible and everybody's heart. But did you see how we're in Romans chapter 12, and how I told you that God will see the finished product, even when it's not finished, right there is the proof of it. God saw him as a faithful priest before he was a faithful priest. God saw him in the role that God wanted him to be, one of the greatest prophets to the nation of Israel, long before he ever got there. God sees you and me as the finished product. And the example of Samuel was a picture of some young man who actually got to where God wanted him to be because he saw it too. And it all starts with letting none of God's word fall to the ground. Now, verse 35, five areas here, very quickly. 
and they match up to us. First thing he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. I told you, the key to everything is faithfulness. You can't please God without faithfulness, Hebrews chapter 11. It's the key word. God gives you enough faith to get saved by measure, and then you develop that faith as you grow in grace. Second thing, he had God's heart. That'd be Psalms 119. Third thing, he had God's mind. That'd be 1 Corinthians 2.16, Philippians 2.5. Fourth thing, God knew that this man would build him a sure house. Psalms 107 verse, 27 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain to build it. Proverbs 9.1 says, Wisdom hath built her house, she has hewn out her seven pillars. We talked about it a couple of months ago. How does the whole Bible built on seven pillars? And those are the same seven pillars that you need to build a church on. Building a sure house. He saw in Samuel everything that we need to see in our lives. And then he says the fifth thing, that he will walk before me forever. That speaks to his commitment. That he's never going back to the world. That he's going to walk before God for the rest of his life. Now that's the character qualities of God built into a man in the Old Testament. And it shows us through his life the process brought about by the power of God, giving him the gifts in his life to do the job. Remember, God will never call you or send you without giving you the tools to do the job, the gifts. But it's a process. And you cannot be in a hurry, and you have to always keep it simplistic. It's not about, folks, how well you know the Bible. It's how well you use the Bible. It's do you follow the principles or do you have one set of rules for somebody else and another set for yourself? Yet there's a sixth aspect to all this. And this is where I want to finish this morning. And this is where it all goes back to Romans chapter 12, verse 7. Our waiting on ministry. Now this was the greatest thing in his early years as he was preparing. How many times have I taken a young man or a young lady who was wanted to be in ministry? And I showed them the model here that once his mother turned him over to the priest, the priest then began to teach him. And while Samuel is, is sleeping, he's still a young child, he's sleeping, God speaks to him. And God is putting into his heart at that point what he's going to do with him down the line. But Samuel doesn't understand it. What does Samuel do? He gets up and he runs over to Eli and he says, did you call me? He couldn't discern the voice of God from the voice of Eli. Most young Christians can't discern the voice of my voice of saying from what God speaks to. So it gets confusing. What's Eli do? Eli says, go back to sleep. Second time, he goes back to sleep. God speaks to him again. He comes running over to Eli. Eli understands that this kid is still young. He's still green. He, he doesn't have all of the tools, so he simply says, go back to sleep. Third time, he comes over and he wakes him up. The Bible says this time, Eli perceived that the Lord had called him. See, it was the structure that Samuel was in that interpreted for him what God was doing right up to the point that he got him going. And you know what he's learning? The great concept that he's learning from Eli? He's learning to be patient and wait on the Lord. Now, let me show you something. Let me show you how what he learned there carries right on into the ministry when he's the great man before Israel. And I'm making this point because what you learn right here in my ministry, as I lay it out to you, the things that I choreograph and put into your world, into your life for a purpose, for a reason, to get you where you need to get, to get you the tool, to equip you, is so that you will take what you learn now when you go into ministry someplace down the road, maybe here, maybe someplace else. 
I'm developing a thing, and it's coming out slow, but it's coming. I'm developing a, a ministry. There was a time years ago when I had some like 14 or 15 churches in a three-state area that had no pastors. And every Sunday, there was two guys out of, out of my ministry into all these churches preaching. It's starting to develop itself now. It won't develop any faster than we do, but it's already started to develop. And it's one of those things that God brings in in time. And what happens is, is you, you send guys down. They go to a church. They go down there for a six, seven a month. The people get to know them. They get to know the people. They stay in their homes. They feed them. And then suddenly, as the whole thing grows, the person calls up and says, you know what? We'd like to have that person for our pastor. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's how it's supposed to be done. Very slowly, it's beginning to work that way. It, we can't get in a hurry. I'm not in any hurry. I didn't look for the door. God opened the door. I'm going through the door. Got two guys going out here in the near future uh, to, to follow up with it, which will be able to kick the door open farther, and off we go. It's just that simple. But I want you to see how that the importance of he learned, what he learned in the temple from Eli, he then carried through into the ministry. Now, our first example of this, and there's two, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 27. And this is Samuel and Saul. And this is a great example. It's a great example for any person who really desires ministry. Now, look at verse 26. 1 Samuel 9, 26. And they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, watch this, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant, that's the people that are with them, bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, watch this, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. You know what he said to Saul? Saul, you're in too big a hurry. You know, that was Saul's characteristic all of his life. Saul was always in a hurry. Saul was a picture of a pastor, picture of a lot of Christians, who he thinks arrogance takes the place of experience. He was a very arrogant individual. He thought he knew more about it than anybody. certainly thought he knew more about it than Samuel did. And Samuel was the guy that was getting it direct from the God. You see, Saul wasn't God's choice. But God gave him a chance. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, God could have just come down and said, nope, killed him and put David in. You notice God didn't do that? You know why? Because God will give somebody a chance even when he knows how they're going to wind up. He does that so at the end, at the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ, nobody can point their finger at him and say, you cut me off. I would have done it if you'd have let me do it. You know what he does? He lets us do it. That's something you need to learn in ministry. Everybody gets a chance. Even if they burn you at the end, they get a chance because at the end of the day, it's God's ministry, not mine, not yours. And he, he learned that. He, 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 God gave Saul a chance. He gave him Samuel. But you know what? Saul would never listen to Samuel. Saul was so arrogant, like so many of God's people, that he thought he knew more about the ministry than Samuel did. He thought that God, uh, the fact that God talked to Samuel, that Saul was the king, so therefore he'd been around a lot longer than Samuel, and he just knew how to do it. And you know what? Did you ever see the end of his life? His whole life is a, is a screw-up. His whole life is a screw-up. But you know the thing that got him killed? 
The thing that got him killed was the fact that he was not willing to wait. How did he get killed? It came down to the end of the day, and the sacrifice needed to be made. And the Bible says that Samuel tarried. Now, Samuel was a priest, and he could make the sacrifice. Saul was not a priest. Saul was a king, and Saul was a prophet, but Saul was not a priest. You had to be a priest to make the sacrifice. Saul was not a priest. There's only two men in the Bible that only have all three offices. Jesus Christ is a king, he's a prophet, and a priest. David is a priest, a prophet, and a king. That's why David could eat the shoe bread when he was in the temple. Most people don't figure that out, that that's exactly what. Saul was not. Saul was a king, he was a prophet, he was not a priest. And the Bible says the time of the six o'clock evening when the sacrifice had to be made drew near. And you know what Saul did? Saul says, well, Samuel's not here. I guess I'll have to do it. And when he did that, and he made the sacrifice, he violated one of the most stringent principles in the Bible, and that was his undoing. It wasn't everything else that he did. It was that particular thing where he stepped over the line and took the authority away from Samuel that he had no right to take, and God killed him. And God took his kingdom from him, and then God wind up killing him and took his mercy from him. Why? All because he couldn't wait. He had to be the main chandelier in the ballroom. He had to be, look at me. He had to be, watch me. He had to be, I'll show you how it's done. And it didn't work out too good for him. That's the first example. The second example is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now watch this. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Here it comes again. Now therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Now here's our second example. And what he's doing is what we need to learn to do. He's carrying what he learned in the temple right into ministry. Now, when it talks about the gifts of God that we're talking about today, the key to getting and realizing those gifts is simply four things, and we're talking about two of them today. One is simplicity. The second one, don't get in a hurry. Now, the first place we looked at, he was talking to Saul, and Saul didn't listen. This place, he's talking to the whole nation of Israel. Hey, you know what? <laughs> they didn't listen either. He's saying, wait a minute, stand still. Don't get in a hurry. It isn't, and I know what people think. People think, well, you know, if the rapture comes, I want to do something. Well, that's an admiral thing. But you know what? Doing something stupid before the rapture comes is worse than doing nothing before the rapture comes. God understands your heart. God realizes that you have to work through some things. He'd rather have you be patient. And he says, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the land which he did to you and to your father. You know what he's saying? He's saying, stop and look at this thing. Don't try to go out farther till you stop and look at where you're at and where you've been. You've got to keep it in a perspective or you'll lose your purpose. And when you lose your perspective and you lose your purpose, your passion goes right out the door. God has some gifts for you and me. It's Christmas. 
and Christmas has ceased a long time ago to be about the birth of Christ. Christmas is about gifts. It's about getting. It's about happy times and getting what we want instead of what we deserve. But I say to you on this Sunday before Christmas, what a tragedy it would be if you get more excited and more fired up about the gifts that your friends or your wife and your family has for you and miss the gift that God has for you. Your verse for the week, Psalm 4610. If I were you, I'd put this in my heart and make this my verse this week. It simply says this, verse 1011, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Be still. Don't get in a hurry. Work at what you learn in my ministry. The things that I teach you. Learn about the simplicity. Learn about when we have a program and a process, there's a reason behind it. There's a reason I do everything that I do. You need to learn what that is in its simplicity. You need to wait for God, and then you need to take the things you learn right on into the ministry where you go. But it takes some time. It takes a process of grace, exercising your senses to build your faith, and then God, after you build the character of God in your life, God giving you the gifts to do whatever God's called you to do. There's no doubt in my mind. This is one of the reasons why we got to change radically next year where we're going. This is one of the reasons, and Chris and I talked about this yesterday, this is the absolute reason why we've got to make a radical 360. We've got to do something here that's going to, as I said, I don't think it's ever been done before in the history of churches. Maybe it has, and I don't know about it, but I don't know anything about it. But it has to be done. It has to be done. And it's going to be exactly what, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, I, I'm, I've never asked you for, for anything. I've never come to you for anything, uh, but I'm telling you, it will be the definitive point in our church. And I'm calling the church together to understand where we're going, that you might be able to put these things in a better way in your world, in your life. And we'll go from there. When we're done, you can still sign up in the back. Next Sunday will be the last time. Hey, it will be a great time if you have unsaved people, if you have people looking for a church. It will be a great time for them from their perspective. They will honestly and understand where this church is going, and it will be very clear for them, yeah, man, this is where I'm at, or no, this is where I'm not, as it will for you. Let's pray. Father.